show is here. Yo, our mission is clear. It's time to change healthcare. Have no fear. Today is the day. This is the hour. Together, you know we've got the power. Drop the silos. We're all the same team. Experience, business, tech, and marketing. How can anyone be satisfied with the way things have always been? Yeah, we tried. So join us now. Join the revolution. Consumer first health is the evolution. Status quo, more like status. No. Yeah, this is the healthcare rep. Y'all, come on, let's go. New choices, new platforms, new care models. In the healthcare of tomorrow, consumers win. But who will design it? What will it look like? And how long will it take? We're here to answer those questions with some provocative thinking about how to create the healthcare that people actually want. Ready to roll up your sleeves, look at the world a little differently, and explore the frontiers of consumer health together? Join us. This is the Healthcare Wrap. Welcome back. I'm Jared Johnson from Shift Forward Health, and here's what's going to go down today. We have the flavor of the week about Blue Shield of California's newly announced partnerships with Amazon and Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company. Are they truly ripping up the PBM playbook? And is this the first of many dominoes to fall in the quest to find cost savings for both the business and healthcare consumers? I'll talk about that. Then Peter Yesowich joins us to talk about how providers can implement the same techniques as hospitality organizations to enhance the patient experience. Peter and his co-author, Stowe Shoemaker, wrote a new book called Hospitable Healthcare that comes out today, and it examines 24 service touch points that are common to both hospitality and healthcare experiences. It's time to dive right in. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the Week. How many disruptors can fit into one headline? Blue Shield of California dominated the news cycle by announcing that they are ending their 15-year PBM relationship with CVS and replacing it with Amazon and Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company. As part of the rollout, Amazon will offer at-home drug delivery. Mark Cuban's company will provide access to low-cost medications, including through retail pharmacies. Another company, Abarca, will process the claims. Interestingly, they'll continue to use CVS Caremark for specialty drugs for patients with complex conditions, but the online pharmacy pharmacies will provide services for the rest. This new plan is expected to save the company $500 million a year when it's fully operational in 2025, or about 10 to 15% of their total costs for prescriptions. And they say that they will pass along those savings to their members. All of the players involved here have had their say. Paul Markovich, CEO of Blue Shield of California, was quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying that the current pharmacy supply chain is a forest of opacity and profit. It's overwhelmingly complex, and it's designed to maximize the earnings of the participants. His company Company's new setup, he said, will be flipping that on its head. John Love, vice president of Amazon Pharmacy, said, We're thrilled to add upfront pricing, free delivery, and 24 7 access. And Mark Cuban told CNBC that, quote, It takes time. There are a lot of bad habits they need to break. I think all payers realize that now that Cost Plus has made the price of medications transparent, providers and patients can see what prices should be, and the entire industry will have to adjust. Close quote. Now, when I think about the scale and impact of this announcement, it clearly doesn't affect everyone but maybe this is a first domino. After all, Blue Shield did say that they hope other plans and employers can follow this same model. Some outlets are describing this as ripping up the PBM playbook, and that tends to happen one chapter or even one page at a time. What I like is the precedent for finding an intersection of cost savings for the business as well as for members. The PBM supply chain is as opaque as any industry I can think of. Consumers generally don't know how many transactions take place in that supply chain leading up to the fulfillment of their prescription. 
With announcements like this, we're watching disruption play out in real time. And yes, to be fair, it remains to be seen how well all of this can be executed. But what if cost savings for consumers drove more healthcare transactions? Let's find out by seeking more intersections of what's good for healthcare businesses and what's good for the ones experiencing care. That's another way that we'll build to the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the Week. All right, everyone, let's get into the flow. I'm so excited for today's guest. Please give it up for Peter Yesowich, Chairman of Hospitable Healthcare Partners and Vice Chairman Emeritus of MMGY Global. Peter, welcome to the Healthcare Wrap. Thank you, Jared. Delighted to be here. This is a, this is real exciting. Uh, what, what did I miss in your bio? What else would you like our listeners to know about you and your background? There's a lot there. Well, it's um, chock full of uh, both hospitality and healthcare, I guess is the way to describe it. I, I started my career uh, over 40 years ago in the hospitality business and developed an agency, a marketing agency that worked with a number of hospitality brands that I think many of your listeners would recognize. Companies like Hilton International, Leading Hotels of the World, Fairmont Hotels and Resorts, and developed uh, hospitality marketing programs uh, for them over the years. Then that uh, evolved into destination marketing where I worked with a number of very popular destinations around the world, essentially promoting them to US travelers who were interested in visiting those destinations. Then I took a 10-year sabbatical in healthcare. And uh, the reason I did that is um, the gentleman who was the chairman of the company, it was an oncology company by the name of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. We had five hospitals, 10 clinics, specialized in treating primarily patients that had a complex or an advanced stage diagnosis of cancer. And he was interested in, in uh, enlisting the support of somebody who had a service marketing background to help him begin to deliver that message to more prospective patients. So I took a 10-year sabbatical where I essentially left my marketing business and hospitality and put on a healthcare hat. And it was a fascinating experience for me because I learned so much about not just the business of medicine and the practice of medicine, but importantly, the role of hospitality and the delivery of healthcare. And that's really what inspired uh, this book, which I know we're going to talk about for a while. I also had the benefit of looking through the lens of uh, my education. I have a doctorate in psychology. I never practiced because I was never a specialist in clinical psychology. I was always un- understanding or interested in understanding how uh, the world around us affected the way people interpreted messages, principally commercial messages, as they would be appear in, in things like advertising, promotion, context online, and so forth. So anyway, that was the lens that I, I looked at, at communications through, and I found it to be immensely helpful in terms of writing this book. We are going to dive into the book for sure, which is called Hospitable Healthcare. Let's give our listeners a little bit more here to begin with. What's a piece of career advice that you've received that has just stuck with you over the years? My answer to this is probably going to be very similar to the answer that you've <clears throat> received from others. And then I'm going to give you an answer that perhaps you don't expect. You know, the first part of that is obviously to be passionate about what you do. And when you do that, just about everything else in my experience tends to fall in line. Naturally, there are ups and downs in, in any career, as there have been in my career. Certainly as an entrepreneur and as somebody who built a business, eventually I had, you know, over 250 mouths to feed, you know, every day on my staff. And you take those obligations very seriously. But being passionate about that allows you to pursue those 
kinds of uh, opportunities and commitments in a way that ultimately enables you to prevail, in my experience. And not to say that, there again, there won't be obstacles and failures along the way. That's always the case. But I find if you have kind of a true north in terms of what you believe and practice, that ultimately things will turn out well. Now, more to the point, one of the things that, that really inspired this book as it relates to career advice is the tremendous deficit that I have observed in certainly my 10 years in the healthcare business as it relates to the way patients are greeted, treated, and served. And I guess from a career point of view, what I would encourage your listeners to think about is we are rapidly approaching a point in time when just about every healthcare provider in this country is going to have to begin to understand and implement really principles of hospitality in their practices. Part of that's being driven commercially because every healthcare provider in the country now competes for patients. And that's not something they did, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago. But now with uh, all of the information available online, social media and so forth, more and more people are accessing information on providers and generally within reason, you know, exercise decision about where it is they want to go for care. One of the things that will be a differentiating feature for those providers, I believe, in the future is the extent to which they address this hospitality deficit. So from a career point of view, I would suggest to your listeners that if they happen to be in the hospitality industry, they should think about the transferability of those skills to healthcare, because those will exist, I think, and the opportunities will be considerable in the years ahead at every conceivable level in an organization, whether it's an entry-level position through a mid-level administrative staff, all the way up to the CEO level. And I would submit to you, Jared, if you and I were having this conversation three, four, five years from now, we would discover that many of the senior people in the healthcare industry will have come from the hospitality industry. And I think that's a career opportunity for many people in hospitality today. Outstanding. Outstanding. I love that thought. And that does have to do with that's a it's a perfect transition here to talking about kind of some of the drivers in healthcare. Maybe we can start off with the key drivers of, of patient dissatisfaction. I think a lot of talk about what satisfies patients with their experience has been discussed, still not fully understood or fully accepted by everyone. But let's talk about patient dissatisfaction in terms of like, what are some of those key drivers? And the way I'd love to begin that conversation is by asking you a question. And this is the question that I ask anyone that you know expresses interest in this topic. And that is, can you think of a personal healthcare experience that you've had with which you were unhappy because something went wrong? And I have yet to meet someone, Jared, who doesn't have a a personal story about a healthcare experience gone wrong. Now, what's interesting about that is very rarely when I ask them why, is it the clinical outcome? But more often than not, it has to do with the way they were served. And that is the way that the care was actually delivered. And if you think about that, I think that's true probably for you as it is for me and, and, and most of your listeners. So that idea or that question really is what inspired me and my co-author, Stowe Shoemaker, to write this book. And just a little bit about his background, too, you understand how this this kind of intersects. He grew up in the hospitality business. He was trained academically in that business, currently is the dean of the hospitality management program at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, which I think is the second largest of its kind in the country with respect to undergraduate enrollment. 
But he also, for years, actually was in your previous hometown in Houston. He was at the University of Houston as the dean, where he also had a faculty appointment at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. So interestingly enough, he had a blend of hospitality and healthcare background, and he and I have known each other for years. When we decided to write this book, we said, well, what is it we really want to examine and hopefully illuminate? And it goes back to the answer to that question that I just asked you a moment ago. Have you ever had a healthcare experience gone wrong? Well, everybody has a personal story, but we wanted to author a book that had some real empirical credibility to it and not just a couple of guys with enlightened opinions. So what we decided to do is we did a national survey of 1,200 adults in the country. And these were uh, individuals that were all screened very appropriately and thoroughly to qualify so we could ask them for their opinions. And what we asked them to do was to give us their impressions of 22 common service interventions in both healthcare and hospitality. Let me kind of deconstruct that for you. 22 points of engagement that are unique to both hospitality and healthcare. Let me give you an example. How easy or difficult it is to make an appointment what the arrival experience is like, whether or not you know the cost of the service before you actually receive the service, how easy or difficult it is to resolve disputes about service, you know, whether or not the provider asks you to give feedback on the service, those kinds of things. So we did this with 1,200 adults in the country, and we asked those questions about five categories of providers, hospitals, walk-in clinics, physicians' offices, lodging, which was hotels, resorts, and restaurants. So the way for your listeners to think about this is if we had a, a great big spreadsheet in front of us, we had 22 service interventions and we had five industries. So we have a five by 22 design with 1,200 observations in each one of those cells. And what we did is we asked people to tell us whether or not their experiences on each of those 22 attributes for those five categories, how they felt about those, and uh, what we learned from that. So long answer to a great question, but that's how we started. And guess what? We discovered there were some very significant, as we called them, hospitality deficits in the delivery of care as evidenced by those those 22 points of service intervention. I love the thought that you did recognize that you can go further than the, like you said, just having some enlightened opinions about things, about creating some empirical data to review and to base all of this on. I'm thinking about things like what one industry can learn from the others. So what healthcare providers can learn about patient satisfaction from service strategies in the hospitality industry. Do we want to dive into some of those? Absolutely. So basically, after running all the analytics on this, there were five themes that emerged. And let me just describe them briefly and then give you a couple of data points and we're happy to dive into them. So again, we have 22 different points of service engagement. And the number one theme that is the primary driver of this unhappiness or this dissatisfaction that patients have with healthcare compared to hospitality, this will probably come as no surprise, is not knowing or understanding the cost of the service before it's provided. So, you know, let me ask you the question. The last time that uh, you had a medical procedure that was required, could have been dental, could have been going to a clinic, could have been going to a hospital. Question is, you know, were you told about the cost of the procedure you were about to receive before they actually administered the care? 
And the answer, you know, for most of us is no, we weren't. Now, you could argue, well, we should ask that. Many people do, and many times they do, and they don't get an answer. But that is the, the single greatest source of dissatisfaction, being able to understand the invoice or the bill. You know, how many times have we all received you know, summary statements from our either insurance company or the, the healthcare provider with a detailed description of the services provided? And we have great difficulty kind of interpreting and deciphering, you know, the things that we're being charged for. Whether or not the bill is consistent with your expectation, that's another dimension of this. People have generally a sense of what I think things cost today. And whether or not the bill is consistent with that is also a source of this kind of deficit. So the theme number one is this idea of knowing the cost before the service is delivered. The second theme generally that came out of the analysis is whether or not you feel appreciated as a customer. Now, a lot of people in healthcare don't like the term customer. You know, they prefer obviously the term patient, but, you know, depending on which side of the table you're on, you know, it's reasonable to think of patients as customers because they do have a choice. And the issue there is how they feel about whether or not the provider really appreciates their business. You know, you go to any uh, popular restaurant or hospitality attractions, lodging, you're generally thanked for your patronage, you know, and many times you're thanked (laughs) repeatedly and profusely, right? Question is, are you thanked for your patronage, you know, when you exit the clinic or when you leave the hospital or when you leave a physician's office? And you're more likely to be thanked, you know, when you left the physician's office. We discovered that in our research than you are the other two. But fact of the matter is uh, most people feel like their, their, their patronage is not appreciated as customers in healthcare. Third general theme is the whole reception environment. You know, what, what's it like when you walk in? It's the, is the environment welcoming? Is the experience welcoming? Do the people that are there make you feel welcomed? Do they interact with you in a way that makes you feel they're eager to serve you? You know, all of those are dimensions of that. And, you know, I think we've all had the experience, and I don't mean this critically, but it's, I think it's, it's an objective assessment. All the experience of, you know, you walk into certainly a hospital or a clinic, and you might be greeted by someone's head down at the counter who's, you know, focused on a computer screen, and you're handed a clipboard, and you're asked to sign in. And after you've done that, you're delegated to go sit in a waiting room with, you know, you know, the proverbial joke of the aged magazines, but the video loop from the pharmaceutical company, you know, has nothing to do with your ailment and, you know, those kinds of things. And all of that kind of rolls up into this arrival experience and reception. And you compare and contrast that with what hospitality providers have done. You know, give you an example from my experience at uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America. One of the things that we worked so hard on was this idea of a welcoming environment and reception because we knew, obviously, people would arrive extremely anxious. You know, these were people that had a cancer diagnosis, as I mentioned typically before, a more complicated or advanced diagnosis, uh, oftentimes arriving with family members and loved ones. And the level of anxiety, you know, on their part was palpable. So what we did was create environments that were designed to go ahead and make uh, that experience more welcoming. So you ask, well, how do we do that? Well, if you ever visited one of those hospitals and you, uh, you entered the lobby, it didn't feel like a hospital. It felt more like a grand living room. There was a grand piano that was, you know, playing soft music. There was a large aquarium. There was beautiful illumination, soft colors, things of that nature. There was no front desk. 
You know, you were greeted by essentially a, a personal attendant who knew your name the moment you walked in. And we had ways to do that so that patients would be greeted personally by an individual who would then, you know, take them to a, a desk and they would, you know, administer the appropriate paperwork and so forth. But you get my point, And that is the, the welcoming environment. Fourth, service logistics. Can I get a reservation when I want one? Can I get an appointment when I want one? We studied that very thoroughly. I think we've all had challenges with uh, getting appointments with healthcare providers, and I can appreciate the complexity of that. But uh, typically, you'd get one on their terms, not your terms. And, um, you know, one of the things we examine in the book is the question of what would life be like if uh, you were to give as a provider, you know, patients an option to go ahead and, and uh, make appointments on their own time and terms particularly if it uh, they're non you know critical or emergency kinds of procedures which represent uh, you know the majority of procedures that are actually provided or delivered by a number of providers and what about the check-in process you know we all have stories about having to um, get that clipboard and complete that information ad nauseum you know so what happens is uh, we may have to, even at the same provider, that you know, the next time we go back, we're handed the clipboard again for an update. Or how about this? You know, made a referral by one physician to another, and they could have just as easily sent um, information that would have maybe reduced the administrative time for you to provide basic information on insurance and things of that type. But they didn't do it. As a result of that, you're handed another clipboard when you arrive. So that whole logistics issue is a, a theme. And the last one, the fifth theme that emerged was this whole issue of service assessment and recovery. Stated very simply, what that means is, let's say you do have an unhappy, unpleasant, unfortunate experience in healthcare. The question is, how easy or difficult is it to get amends? And the example we love to give is, you know, if you and your wife or girlfriend or significant other go off this weekend for a a celebratory dinner because of an anniversary, and uh, the restaurant, for whatever reason, doesn't live up to its standard. Maybe the entree is cold or the service isn't to your liking. And, and you express that you know, to the wait staff. More often than not, they'll make an immediate adjustment to your bill or they'll try to replace that entree or they'll give you a, an unexpected dessert, complimentary. Or, they work very hard to go ahead and, and recover from bad service. And if you switch gears on that and say, well, what happens if you um, have had uh, something go wrong with a medical procedure or an experience and you object to the service quality, you know, do they make amends or do they make financial adjustments? And I think you know the answer to that question. So anyway, five themes, long answer, great question. But just to restate that then in summary, number one is the issue of knowing the cost of the service before it's, it's, if it's delivered. The second is uh, customer appreciation. The third is the whole arrival experience. The fourth are logistics related to the service and how how complicated those might be. And then the fifth is this idea of service recovery. And that's a lot to process, but hopefully helpful. It's very helpful. And it confirms or validates a lot of ideas that I would say have gained traction over the last few years, at least, but still aren't widely acknowledged of how important they are. And I speak with a lot of providers who easily find a reason that, well, that part doesn't apply to us. You know, we're this type of practice or we're this type of health system or with, you know, with this 
type of condition or whatnot, you know, this thing's different. We, we find exceptions very easily and people can take umbrage at the point of just being likened to other industries. I do think we're making a lot of progress. I think five years ago, it was hard to have this conversation at all. I do think there's a little bit more openness and, and the question has turned a lot more these days to, okay, we kind of get about like, what do we do about it? And how do we go anywhere? One of the things I hear is that if you're a customer and you're purchasing hospitality services, you usually do have choices there. That's not always the case when you're seeking healthcare. So when you talk about principles of hospitality that can enhance an experience, choice in healthcare is different. I find a lot of times that we're finally acknowledging that the term consumerism, at whatever level you refer to it, we speak about consumer transformation sometimes, like the large scale changes and approaches to care that address consumerism. But that word consumerism has been used, meaning people have choices. And we we all know that depending on the condition or the, the part of the patient journey that you're on, it's not always like shopping on Amazon, but we also have expectations all along the way. So this acknowledgement that it's not just the fact that I had a choice or I didn't have a choice. It's like, I'm a consumer of healthcare. I do have expectations of that service level. I have expectations of some of the points there. I'm trying to you know, think of how to, like specifically which parts of hospitality, for instance, of that approach to service can providers implement that will help that patient experience, especially given the fact that choices are just different in those two industries? Great question. Let me maybe give you a little more context and then answer your question. There was a, a wonderful literature review that was conducted by two academicians a couple of years ago where they tried to look at all the published literature on what the key drivers of patient satisfaction were. And they looked at the results for literally thousands of uh, hospitals, and they kind of plowed through HCAP scores and so on and so forth. And the headline in that paper was that the elements of hospitality, kind of generally, were the key drivers of patient satisfaction, more so than, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, the clinical outcome. Now, that doesn't in any way diminish the importance of the clinical outcome because nobody wants a, a poor clinical outcome for sure. But the fact of the matter is, when you talk to patients about their experience, and I think we've all had this personal experience, they're more likely to describe elements related to the hospitality of that experience. They had to wait too long or they didn't have to wait. They got right in. You know, that was a very positive aspect of their experience. Uh, the food was lousy. There was too much noise. You know, all of those elements as opposed to, you know, commenting on certain aspects of the, of the clinical experience. So I guess the point I'm making, Jared, is that there's literature that it indicates that these are very important considerations Regardless of the kind of insurance you have, you know, to your question and a good question about choice or the, of the number of options that you have. And even if you have a, you know, a restricted kind of insurance, typically you have options within the network that is available to you, even though those choices may be limited. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the principles of hospitality to enhance the patient experience apply from Medicaid to Medicare all the way up, you know, to the premium con uh, commercial insurance policies, they may be administered differently, 
and the service concepts may be delivered differently. But the fact of the matter is that the, some of the principles are kind of fundamental regardless of the elements of, of choice and the ability of, of a patient to, to choose. Now, having said that, the question of well, how do you implement this is, is a wonderful one. And actually, in the book, we've created a model. And the acronym for the model is P-A-E-E-R, five letters pronounced payer. Now, hopefully you're getting a little bit of a chuckle out of my pronunciation of that because, as you know, in healthcare, payer is a word that turns lots of heads because every provider is concerned about their relationship with payers, you know, the typically the insurance companies that, you know, provide the reimbursement. Well, our payer model consists of five elements, and each of those letters translates into a word as part of this model. P is for prepare. A is for anticipate, E is for engage, the second age is for evaluate, and R is for reward. So the model that we have is five steps for any provider, doesn't matter if it's a physician's office or a academic medical center. What we're saying is that the five steps in this model, if introduced and practiced properly, and we have very specific recommendations in the book for healthcare providers to do that, will improve the patient experience significantly. So let me give you an example. Let's take the P. We say prepare. Well, you know, one of the things that the hospitality industry has learned over the past really 10, 15 years and practiced extremely well is preparation. So, for example, they uh, typically, after you have booked an appointment, make a reservation. It's quite common now, certainly for the more admired hospitality providers, to contact you in advance of your arrival to ask for things like, well, are there any dietary restrictions? Would you prefer a room on an upper floor or close to the elevator? What about pillow selection if it's lodging? Do you need any assistance with transportation from the airport? You know, things of that nature. And what they'll do more often than not is they'll they'll push uh, that information to you. So you might get a uh, an email from them that says things you might want to think about during your next visit to Dallas, you know, whatever it might be. Okay, so all of that is in preparation for your arrival. Now, what happens in healthcare generally is very little, if anything. In fact, you might be given some instructions about don't eat or drink anything, you know, from midnight prior to your arrival, you know, whatever it might be, or even information that you might be able to provide in advance to eliminate the time-consuming process of filling out forms when you get there. Okay, so one of the things, again, hospitality has done is they've learned how to prepare, and they do that very, very well. And by the way, they use certain tools to encourage you to provide that information in advance so that they can then anticipate your arrival. So anyway, you get you get kind of the drift that there are certain techniques that they use for each of those five components of the model that allow them to really deliver a much higher level of service. I love that. And especially, I, I really can remember how to pronounce that. The, <laughs> the payer. Payer. Yep. <laughs> love it. The promising things, I guess, about increasing the overall service level in healthcare is the thought that if this becomes a priority, we should see more people wanting to seek care because we'll have better experiences overall. 
And I think that's one of the byproducts here. That's one of the macro reasons to focus on this is to realize there are a lot of people who who avoid care. And this is one of the reasons because of the experience. Absolutely. And that wasn't widely acknowledged in the industry. It may still not be. I don't, I don't know. But it's it's one of those things that's very clear now. Well, let me give you a statistic that, that is alarming, that is on point. One of the things that we discovered in our work and confirmed in our survey is the attrition that occurs for most adults in America from the time they might visit, say, a hospital or a clinic for a, a service and their repeat patronage of that hospital, clinic, or for that matter, physician's office. In the hospital category, this is where it's really alarming. You'll be interested to know that only 40%, roughly it's 41, 42% of adults in this country, after they've received, received, uh, received some kind of medical treatment from a hospital, only 40% are likely to go back to that hospital or hospital system for any form of medical service in the next five years. So if you kind of look at the the inverse of that, what I just said was that 60% of patients in hospitals, the attrition rate is 60%. They don't go back. So you say, well, well, why is that? Because if they did go back, then to your point, you know, if you develop a relationship with patients over time that would presumably enhance their health, maybe their longevity, their medical compliance, you know, you know all the kinds of things that are very beneficial, not just to their lifestyle, but also to the healthcare system, you know, in terms of, of cost management. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in healthcare today. And if you maybe click out of that and click into hospitality, say, well, didn't hospitality have the same problem? Well, sure they did. What did they do about it? They created loyalty programs. So we all members of airline programs and hotel programs and restaurant programs and even Starbucks programs. And the idea is that all of these service marketers have created these programs that are designed to recognize and reward their customers to create loyalty. That doesn't exist in healthcare today. And it's really ironic because if you think about, you know, when people consume healthcare, the older we get, the more healthcare we consume. And it would therefore make a lot of sense, I think, for a lot of healthcare providers to think about how they would create these kinds of loyalty programs to encourage that. You know, I could talk for hours about that. And actually, in our book, we have a, an opening scenario I, I described very quickly because it's kind of humorous of a, a 45-year-old male who's told by his PCP that it's time for his first colonoscopy. So he has great difficulty booking his appointment with the local gastro who does all that work, doesn't meet the physician till he's on the gurney being rolled into the operating room. He gets up, awakens from the procedure. He's very fuzzy, wants to know the outcome, is told that he can't be given that information right away. As it turns out, uh, two weeks later, he gets a surprise bill in the mail for $900 from the anesthesiologist that wasn't covered by the insurance company. I mean, you know the whole scenario. Well, six weeks later, by the way, the good news is there were no tumors. So he gets that news and everything's fine. Six weeks later, he and his wife decide that, that it's time for them for a little vacation. So they decide to go to Vegas for a weekend. So they go online, they check out all the options, they find a hotel, they book it because the guy's part of the brand's loyalty program. They show up and lo and behold, it's a wonderful arrival experience, but they got upgraded. They go to the front desk, the, the clerk says, 
Well, Mr. Smith, we're delighted to upgrade you to a mini suite because you're a member of our loyalty program. So Mr. and Mrs. Smith say, wow, this is terrific. And they have a wonderful experience. He uh, looks at his bill on his phone, the mobile app. He checks out. He goes to the, the front desk and uh, notices that uh, the doorman, who is smartly attired, says, we hope you had a wonderful time and we look forward to welcoming you again. He didn't hear that, by the way, from the clinic. Then a couple of weeks later, he opens his visa bill, and it's exactly what he thought it was going to be in terms of what the cost of the vacation was. And then he discovers that he just won 3,000 more reward points for his next vacation. So we ask the question, why didn't he get reward points for his colonoscopy? Now, at that point, most medical professionals kind of are squinting, looking at me or grimacing and say, what? <laughs> I said, wait a minute, think about that. Why shouldn't a patient receive some kinds of, especially recognition, to promote loyalty? Well, the first answer is you can't do that. It's illegal. Well, that's true if it's Medicare and Medicaid because you can't have financial inducements for patronage. But it's not true for the 60% of adults in this country have commercial insurance. So anyway, you know, I could, I could go on and on about that, Jerry, but you get the idea. And the question is, why is it healthcare providers do not have recognition and reward programs to enhance loyalty. And our thesis is that they will soon, particularly for those administrators that read our book. <laughs> I want to make sure I give you a chance here to mention where our listeners can find out more about the book and where they can learn more about you and connect with you. Sure. We have a website, hospitablehealthcare.com. What we've done on that site is we've given visitors a sneak peek into some of the data so they actually see ratings for hospitals versus lodging and so forth. We also have interviews. We have a number of uh, videos on the site of interviews that we conducted with really preeminent practitioners in both healthcare and hospitality on their approach to the delivery of hospitable healthcare, which are available. And then uh, you have on that site also my bio, uh, Dr. Shoemaker's bio, and uh, ways that you can order. It's available, will be available as of the 5th of September on Amazon and all the major book retailing outlets. But we invite anybody who's interested in learning more about hospitable healthcare to visit our site. Outstanding. Well, I want to thank you again. That's a wrap for this episode. I've had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Peter Yesowich. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again. 